Today on Security Science, we analyze the vulnerability landscape of real enterprises. Thank you for joining us as we discuss the second report in our multi-part dive into the Prioritization to Prediction Research Series by Kenna Security and Scientia Institute. In Prioritization to Prediction Volume 2, Getting Real About Remediation, we pick up on the overall vulnerability landscape and analysis that we did in Volume 1 and really dive deep into the vulnerability landscapes as it applies to real enterprise networks, just around 500 of them to be exact. With me today, I have the prima donna of risk-based vulnerability management, Kenneth Security co-founder and CTO, Ed Bellis. Ed, thanks for actually joining. I thought you were going to leave the podcast today. Uh, I did as well, but thank you for making me attend, Dan. Awesome. He almost prima donna out of here because of uh, the color coordination of Jay's books in the background <laughs> that we're seeing right now. It's very nice, a little blue. Anyway, so quick intro here. We also have a special guest that I just uh, implied was on the line here. So I don't really know many people who are more qualified to discuss this topic, but our guest today is a security data scientist that enjoys digging into the data. He's probably best known for his contributions to Verizon's annual data breach investigations report series. And he also has a book, Data-Driven Security, Analysis, Visualization, and Dashboards. He's a founding member of the Society of Information Risk Analysts, co-creator of the Exploit Prediction Scoring System, and finally, partner and co-founder of the Scientia Institute, Jay Jacobs. How's it going, Jay? Really good. Great to be here. Well, we're glad to have you as well. I know that we already did a uh, kind of round one of this series with um, your cohort, Wade, and I believe we came to the conclusion that how we all started working together was Michael Reutemann swiped right on your profile. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, so. Two data scientists uh, meet in a bar. Yeah, pretty much. And and you know the the feeling feeling is pretty much mutual there. Uh, anybody who knows Michael is it's really hard not to be affected by his uh, passion and what uh, wonderful sense of humor. Do we call it charm? Maybe sure. Yeah, sure. I would stick with passion. A- energy. <laughs> <laughs> his his enthusiasm for the whatever topic is at hand is very true. I- Pretty articulate as well. I think uh, what we did epidemiology with him on the last episode, and that was a little bit over my head, but he delivered with a lot of passion. <laughs> there we go. Well, I wanted to kick things off today with a quick uh, recap of our last episode and the P2P Volume 1 report, just to give everyone a little bit of context for this one. So, Overall, you know, we looked at the vulnerability landscape for essentially through the lens of CVEs that existed at the time. Um, This report is a little bit different because we're actually looking at enterprise environments. So the getting real portion of the title Um, in that report, we found that 23 percent of CVEs have exploit code published somewhere. And of those two percent have exploits observed in the wild. So the things you should really care about. And again, this is the overall gamut of every CVE that would had ever been published at the time. Um, from a timeline perspective, 50% of the exploits published within two weeks, plus or minus of a vulnerability being published to the CVE. We defined a couple key measures of coverage and efficiency, which I'll let Ed and Jay uh, dig into a little bit deeper as it comes up in this episode. 
we also looked at some of the strategies, right? So a strategy of CVSS 7 Plus was one of the most effective, yet it only achieved some efficiency of 32%, coverage of 53%. And then we proposed a new model to predict uh, vulnerabilities and kind of prioritize from there. So I think that's where we left off. Um, Ed, I wanted to hand this over to you because in volume two, we really start looking through these realities as it pertains to enterprise data. And we had a couple questions for volume two that we wanted to uh, to address. Do you mind covering off on this? Yeah, sure. Um, so as Dan, as you mentioned, right, one of the things that uh, we really wanted to take a look at, given the, the model that we had kind of come up with in volume one, and we covered a little bit around coverage and efficiency and compared and contrasted a lot of different remediation strategies in volume one, but um, in some ways it felt a little academic uh, in the sense that there we weren't dealing with any of the real world data. We were looking at the kind of encompassing the definition of every vulnerability that's out there in the universe and saying, okay, if you had all of these, how would you go about, uh, you know, prioritizing your remediation or, or using a particular remediation strategy. Um, so with this volume and volume two, really we wanted to do is say, okay, so what do we actually see in these various enterprise environments across all these different verticals? What are companies actually dealing with? And does that change anything when we look at these remediation strategies and, and how are they doing against them? And, and we started to look at things like, um, I, I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, but Scientia introduced the the concept of survival curves around some of the remediation. And I think we saw it for the first time here uh, in volume two. But that really was a, a great way to kind of visualize some of the velocity around the remediation. And also kind of that there, there there's really a long tail that, that occurs when remediating vulnerabilities at any level across these these organizations because there's just so many of them, but they never really eradicate any particular vulnerability typically across their uh, out of their environment completely. Uh, so what we wanted to do is say, okay, so of the vulnerabilities then that they're actually that they actually have that are uh, being identified, and again, there's there's some caveats even within the the data in volume two, right? So uh, keep in mind we're mostly looking at the results coming from various vulnerability scanners. So what does that mean? Well, first off, what vulnerability scanners are they using? What signatures are available for these particular vulnerability scanners? Because they're not going to identify something that they don't have a particular signature for. And then what are they actually scanning, right? Are they scanning their entire environments? Are they looking at a subset? Are they looking at particular platforms? Are they looking at, you know, their, their desktops and laptops? Are they looking at their data centers, their cloud, uh, you name it. So all of the caveats apply there. Um, but really we wanted to understand then, so of the coverage and efficiency, right? So of things that either have, that we see an exploit for in the wild, or that we know of particular weaponized exploit code or POC code that is out there uh, to exploit that, uh, what, what should they be remediating, right? So uh, there's a certain subset uh, that is much different than what we saw in volume one, right? So first off, probably one of the big takeaways is the vast majority of those vulnerabilities that are in the National Vulnerability Database aren't in these environments at all either because they're not being identified or because they simply don't exist. Those companies aren't running that software. It doesn't matter. So being able to lop all of that off, you can really start to kind of 
refine what it is you're looking at. That was one of the really big early takeaways is there's is a big difference between the theoretical universe of vulnerabilities versus what people actually have. That's a really good point. I just want to let everyone on the line who's listening in know that um, you can actually, there'll be a link to download the report if you kind of want to follow along um, in real time and it'll be on the podcast page. So uh, um, kennaresearch.com. But what you're referring to is at the time roughly, so this was what, late 2018, I want to say. So of all the CVEs that exist at the time, it was roughly 108,000, only a 34.2 of them, so 37,000, were actually observed in the enterprise. So we're talking about a much smaller subset that actually were observed in enterprise environments. Um, Jay, I, I don't know, have we done any updates on that since then to see if that proportion is roughly held through? Uh, we did, but uh, I think we updated it in volume five, uh, but I don't think we dwelled on it. Um, because it's sort of, you know, once once you know that stat and then you hear it a second time, you're like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the way it yeah, is, you know. It makes sense. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was just curious if that proportion is like. Didn't shift. Been, yeah, it did not. It's been yeah. consistent. There's, there's definitely some things we saw shift over time, but that was that was not one of them. Right. Interesting. Very cool. So we already laid out basically of the the entire gamut of CVEs that exist, roughly 34. 5%, we'll just round up a little bit, um, exists within enterprise environments. And uh, of that subset, right, only about 5% of all CVEs have exploit and or observe exploits in the wild, right? So that's the stuff you really care about. So we start to really lay down on the proportion of vulnerabilities observed. Uh, Jay, what were some of your takeaways from this kind of Fingerprinting. Let me, I want to back up a little bit because, mm -hmm. you know, in the first one we looked at uh, sort of from the CVE perspective, you start with a long list of CVEs from MITRE, you know, through NVD and things. And you'll look at that and you think, all right, how do I prioritize this? And and that's not really what, what organizations are doing. They get the output from the vulnerability scanner and they say, all right, out of this stack, what should I focus on? Right. Not they don't start with CVEs, but I think it's useful for volume one to look at these CVEs and just sort of lay a groundwork for what we're talking about. And so I think volume two, it's really great to sort of say, all right, what do organizations actually care about? What are they looking at? And then let's focus on that. And I think that's a great perspective. And I think it also sets up again, sort of that foundation on which, you know, the, the subsequent volumes also expand from. Interesting. So getting back to what Ed was saying a little bit earlier is like, almost like theoretical, right? So it's kind of the the first report was a theoretical foundation. So this is what CVE landscape looks like, and this is more of the the practical, I guess. I, I don't know if I'd make that separation because I think CVEs, there's nothing theoretical about CVEs. They exist, the vulnerabilities exist, the products exist, you know, and they're, they're out there. And just the fact that we're not seeing them in corporate environments doesn't make them any less real, you know, uh, but it's just not the things that a lot of the commercial entities are going to care about or have to deal with. And so we just wanted to focus in on actually, I mean, like w the decisions, you know, what what decisions the companies have to make, and they don't have to make a decision about some obscure piece of PHP that will never be in a corporate environment, you know, and so that's what we wanted to focus on were the things that are very tangible and the decisions that need to be made. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with with all of that. I, I, I will throw out one kind of caveat here. We're, we're talking about well, in these enterprise environments, you, you're dealing with much less in terms of the number or the the 
the individual unique CVEs that you're dealing with, but that's not to trivialize it to say they're not dealing with a lot of vulnerabilities, right? You could have that one CVE across, as we've seen across millions of assets, and you're talking about tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of vulnerabilities. So uh, there's there's a lot of work ahead for these for these companies, even if it's just a handful of CVEs. There's there's a lot uh, proliferated across their environment. That's a that's a really good point. Um, just to call out the numbers here, it looks like what eight percent of CVEs affect less than ten assets apiece, right? And that was kind of the bottom bound on this figure four in the report. But three percent of CVEs affect more than one million assets, and there's just this super wide distribution right. <laughs> that you could see. So and everything chart, in between there, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that's, that was really the focus to say like, Hey, look, you, we could talk about this one CVE and count it, you know, among the hundred thousand CVEs that we looked at. But in reality, that one CVE could be like, like we were saying over a million different assets may have that one vulnerability repeated over and over and over again. And so how does that play? And it looks like, you know, when we looked at the overall sample Roughly 40% of vulnerabilities remained opened or unpatched out of the sample. Was that a surprise? Like, I would say, yeah, it was a little bit lower than I think I expected. Uh, I knew I knew we wouldn't see all of them, of course, you know, so I knew we wouldn't see 100%. But I, I kind of expected a little bit more. Uh, but really, I mean, I didn't have any skin in the game. And so I was just looking for what's in the data. Uh, and so whatever the data was going to say, I was going to be like, oh, okay. Of course, that's what it is. You know, just trying yeah. to pretend I expected it. But I, I didn't. I didn't have anything <laughs> sort of set beforehand. But Jay, so yeah. you, what you're saying is you were actually expecting them to have more open vulnerabilities after a year or longer? I expected more of the CVE vulnerabilities to be observed in the uh, enterprise environment. Got it. Got it. So then, then what we saw. Yeah, and and I know Dan, you're you're gonna get to this, but uh, one of the things that we did is kind of uh, in volume two start to look at it by vendors and things like that, and who is responsible for the 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 percentages of open vulnerabilities, and and it was a very telling. Not only that, there's three very large vendors in there, but obviously that encompasses a lot of different products across the enterprise. I mean, we can jump into that right now. Um, it looks like what of the vendors we looked at, three, which people can probably guess who they are, are responsible for 69.1% of all the vulns in enterprise networks. So those being Oracle, Microsoft, and Adobe in that order. I don't think that's surprising to anyone, though. No, I don't. I don't, I don't think, think the so. top three is as surprising. But I mean, for for seven out of every ten open vulnerabilities are coming from one of those three vendors. That to me was pretty shocking, you know. So if you if you aimed your vulnerability management program at just those three vendors to try and get really good at dealing with the vulnerabilities on from those vendors, man, you could knock seven out of ten out of the out of the open vulnerabilities, which is going to be better than the average rate, as we found. And spoiler alerts, uh, some people did much better on one, at least one of those vendors than, than the others uh, in a later volume of B2B. <laughs> even in this one. Yeah, uh, even in this one. I was going to say, yeah. like, we've, we've dug into this quite a few times to split out kind of performance of vendor-led remediation efforts. And I think this is what kind of spurred that line of research later on, right? But when we look at performance, right, of those top three, 
there's one clear winner and it's Microsoft. And then there's one clear loser and that's Oracle. And there's someone who's kind of in between, which is Adobe. Um, and they all have various levels of vendor led remediation programs. Yep. Yep. And I, and I, I, none of those actually surprised me as, as a former practitioner. Um, and I, obviously we talk, we talk quite a bit about all the efforts that Microsoft's done to kind of put into the remediation process. Uh, Adobe kind of benefits actually from some of the Microsoft uh, processes, actually, especially obviously the Adobe on Microsoft. Um, Oracle is all over the board and also Oracle owns a lot of technologies that are notoriously difficult to remediate and patch, right? Just Java alone, right? Imagine all of the, everything that's got to go in. If I'm using Java in my application and I've got to recompile my application and all the dependencies and all of the regression tests and everything that goes along with it, suddenly upgrading Java is a very big deal versus deploying a patch for Microsoft Office as an example. Right. Yeah. And, and Java, I mean, there's a figure in there, figure 11, that, that calls out the proportion of open vulnerabilities associated by product. And Java has a little over 18 percent of open vulnerabilities are in Java. You know, so almost one out of five uh, open vulnerabilities that we know of are coming from Java. And so anybody who's tried to patch Java is like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's try what it is. being the key <laughs> keyword there. Oh yeah, of course. Yep, uh, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm actually I'm curious. On should there be a little more effort going into trying to figure this stuff out on the front end before it's rolled out, or I, just because it's so hard to patch on the back end? Just, well, I think I think anybody who has worked with Java and tried to patch Java, I think what that serves is. Like, you're not going to look at that and be like, oh, I think we can figure out how to fix Java. It's going to be like, hey, when we build the next thing, let's not do it like Java. Right. I mean, that's really the lesson there when you're trying to figure out how to write a language and update it. Like, you do not want to copy what Java is doing. So. That's fair. That's fair. I would say, you know, Java has more vulnerabilities than, say, that we certainly that we see than like Python or, or Ruby or any of these others. But I would also say that if, as an example, a new vulnerability comes out in Ruby, it's not simple to upgrade right. Ruby and then everything yeah. just works Any, either, right? Yeah. It's the nature of, you know, vulnerabilities in your, <laughs> in your actual, uh, you know, coding language of choice is, is a fundamental problem for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I... I just to lay out the performance overall, just so people have the actual numbers here. So out of uh, all the Oracle vulns, 69% of their CVEs were still open, right? So 70% were open, not plugged in for all the reasons we mentioned earlier. With Adobe, they split that. So they're 35% open to 64% closed roughly, depending on how you round. And then Microsoft, they actually have 77% of their vulnerabilities were closed, right? So much they just different. had a lot of them. <laughs> a whole lot of them. Yeah, that was that 77% that was closed was roughly 1 billion vulnerabilities on us. Yeah. That is impressive. <laughs> um, it's, well, yeah, I yeah. just want to add to it's really fun to work on data that has, you know, you count in billions uh doing data analysis. It's just lickety split as you could imagine. Says the data scientist. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the challenges behind that? How long does it take you to run some of this stuff? So let's say like you just want to do a count of something, just look up, you know, let's count the vendors, for example, like in a, in a normal data set, you do that and you get the result. And when you're working with large data sets like this, you set it up and you run it and then you go, you know, fill up your coffee or tea and maybe grab a sandwich or something, come back and then, then it's done. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the, the larger data sets, that's really the biggest challenge is just the interrupt driven because like, you know, you kick something off and then you might get distracted by another project checking email and then the job finishes and it's still, then you're like 10 minutes later, you come back. And so it just draws out that analysis process a little bit with the larger data. Quantum computing can't come soon enough. <laughs> I have no idea what that will do to our I, daily work. No or idea. security or anything in general. Yeah. Well, let's figure it out, IBM. Um, <laughs> speaking of time, uh, we did some digging into the age of uh, open vulnerabilities on systems. So um, in volume one, we looked at timelines for like exploitation or timelines for when an exploit was developed, right? With plus or minus two weeks we mentioned. How long do these vulnerabilities stay open? Oh, man, it is such a complex topic. Um <laughs> So uh, essentially, I think you're going after figure 17 in here, right? Where we have a survival curve. Uh, well, we were looking at um, some of the age of open vulnerabilities in figure six, where we're kind of laying oh, out you're this. you're still up there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're still kind of laying out this foundation, like what does the fingerprint of oh, vulnerabilities right. look like, right? Yeah. So this is actually interesting because we're looking at the, the year that a CVE was published, um, which might actually be different than the year that it was disclosed publicly, um, you know, because sometimes some CVEs will get reserved and then they get published like two years later or something. But the according to the published year, you know, there are open vulnerabilities from 2013 and beyond. You know, I think what it looks like about 15 percent or so of vulnerabilities are from 2013 and before. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are some really old vulnerabilities that just linger and linger and linger in environments. Um and so it's it's rather impressive, actually, that they're still around. But at the same time, without looking at, you know, what what those vulnerabilities are, the risk of those vulnerabilities, we might actually think that could be OK, depending on which vulnerabilities they are. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, then then we've we've got another chart, though, that breaks it up by vendor. And I think 2013, it looks like, I don't know, 80, 90 percent are from Oracle. Um. So I think that sort of tells you like how hard Java can be to patch if, you know, 80% of the vulnerabilities from 2013, even before, is mainly Oracle. Yeah. Um, and they, so. I, the, I don't want to pick on Java too much because that's clearly one of the ones that was very difficult to patch. But Oracle has a awful lot of software uh, and it's, you know, and, and a lot of very difficult software to patch, frankly, whether it be Java or, you know, your RDBMS database or, you know, WebLogic, which has reared its ugly head many times in the past. There's a lot of difficulties around a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And we should point out that to your point, Ed, like we don't, we're not saying like, look how terrible Oracle is or anything like that. I mean, they're there, there obviously could be some arguments either way on that. But I mean, this is basically calling out what we're seeing. This is the reality. You know, I mean, the reality is that organizations have a ton of open vulnerabilities and a lot of those are coming from Oracle and Adobe and Microsoft. And that was one of the reasons we looked at the remediation rate. You know, even though Microsoft has a ton of vulnerabilities out there, they are closing a ton. And as we'll see later, like they close them pretty fast. 
Yeah, you know? yeah. Remediation, right? If you, I mean, one of the lessons learned throughout several of these reports is making it easier for the users, the practitioners to actually remediate these vulnerabilities makes a big difference later on. Yeah, it's very true. So, I mean, let's kind of jump into that. The second question, research question that we looked at with these reports was, you know, how comprehensive and efficient or organizational vulnerability remediation practices, right? So what can we measure um, primarily using um, coverage and efficiency? So I, I don't know who wants to take Jay. You haven't done it sure. yet. Would you like to do a quick definition yeah. of coverage versus efficiency? Yeah. And if anybody has worked around modeling or information theory, there are concepts in there called precision and recall. And these are very standard. I think they even have their own Wikipedia page if you search up precision and recall. Um, and the problem, though, is that these words are not intuitive. Uh, so precision is kind of intuitive. And actually, we use it in the definition in, in volume two um, for for that concept. But then recall is, I don't even know how you begin to internalize what recall actually means. Uh, so we decided to rename them to be more applicable to patch management, right? Which is efficiency. In other words, like we, we define it as it measures the precision of remediation. So out of the things that you choose to do, how efficient were those choices? Are you, are you putting your, your resources to the most efficient use? And then coverage is saying out of all the things you should be fixing, out of all the things that we know that either are being exploited in the wild or have exploit code and weaponized or available on the internet, those are the things that you want to focus on. So the coverage is saying what proportion of those did your decisions cover? And so we've got efficiency for how efficient is your decision and coverage for how much you're covering of what you should do. So those two measurements are the two that we use to talk about uh, strategies that that people are employing to remediate all the vulnerabilities. And the the thing with these two measurements is that they they are essentially trade-offs with, with each other. You could go for 100% coverage, but your efficiency is probably going to be terrible. And one of the reasons to talk about efficiency and coverage or precision and recalls because this is such what they call an unbalanced data set. It's not like 50 are things that you, 50% are things you should fix and 50% you shouldn't. You get very unbalanced, you know, so like between two and 5% are actually exploited in the wild and roughly about a fifth have exploits available. And so that unbalanced aspect means that you can't just talk about a, a normal statistic like accuracy, um, which is something I don't even want to talk about. But so if you focus on efficiency and coverage, you get a much better sense of this unbalanced data problem. And so if you focus on efficiency and you're like, all right, I want to fix just the ones that I think really matter, you probably won't get good coverage. And if you want good coverage, you're probably going to have terrible efficiency. And so the trick is, how do you balance those two? And essentially, it's going to be organization dependent because you may have a small company with a small budget for vulnerability management who's going to say, you know what, we can only spend some small proportion. So we want to probably focus on efficiency. The work that we do put in here, we want to make sure that we're focusing it correctly. And an organization, an organization that has a ton of resources might say, we focus, we're going to focus on coverage. Like we want to be sure that we're getting really good coverage, that we're fixing the things that matter and we're going to accept that lower efficiency. And so depending on the organization and the resources available, we're going to have different strategies. I'll talk about accuracy, Jay. 
<laughs> Another way to put it is, uh, you know, if I had a vulnerability out there and uh, I just I had a prediction system that said this will not be uh, exploited in the wild. And I said that every single time about every single vulnerability. Well, I'd be right 95 percent of the time. And therefore, I'd have 95 percent accuracy. Yeah. And boy, am I doing well, except for those 5% where that's I'm doing a, really bad. Right, if you, yeah, exactly. I, I get an A, yeah. even though I've fixed zero vulnerabilities. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's why accuracy is not a, not a good stat in an unbalanced data set like this. Yeah, because it only takes that 0.01% to happen, but the repercussions of said thing happening are so bad. It doesn't matter if you're right 99.9% .9 of the time. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and, you know, this is all referring to uh, figure 12 as well is a nice um, coverage versus efficiency plot. So you, you can see uh, kind of the trade-offs that um, people would have to make if they're trying to take different strategies and it follows kind of this curve um, along a 3D plot. And what's nice is, um, Jay, you guys were able to basically model out coverage and efficiency on this chart for different strategies, right? And we did that this in volume one, and it's a really cool way to visualize kind of the overall work and where you would sit along this kind of uh, these axes. Right. And, right? and I do want to point out that everything that we did for figure 12 is this is definitely theoretical because as a company looks at what to fix, like, you know, we grabbed CVSS and said 10 and above, 9 and above, 8 and above, so on and so forth. And I don't think anybody actually, when we looked at it, we couldn't see evidence that companies are like, all right, we're going to fix 10 and above and nothing else. You know, nobody does that. Everyone is like, oh, it's a 10. Okay, well, that's interesting. Let me see what else I can look at. You know, and every strategy is going to have some mix of these things. But we looked at CVSS, we looked at where is the vulnerability published? So like if it's on bug track, maybe that, you know, if you had a strategy of fix everything that bug track talks about or, uh, you know, the full disclosure list or Microsoft publishes, you know, in their, in their disclosure list. Um, and then the other thing was just looking at vendors. So like if you looked at from a, a prevalence perspective, uh, the top five, top 10, top 20 vendors, just try to fix everything from them. Uh, what kind of, you know, outcome would you have from that strategy? And clearly by looking at the real world data in volume two, nobody took the vendor strategy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Hence, yeah. Hence the big three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I find interesting as well for these kind of coverage versus efficiency plots is um, most of these prioritization methods, I guess you could say, we'll just call them that for sake of having a descriptor, they tend to prioritize coverage versus efficiency, if anything at all. Right. So it seems like it's a little bit easier to say, go patch every CVE that's ever existed than it is to be like, here are the ones that you should take it's, care of. It's more conservative kind of risk averse approach. So in theory, in everybody's mind, they're thinking that is what I would like to do. Right. I don't want, especially as a security practitioner, I don't want all of this risk. But when you look at it in practicality, that becomes an impossible task, especially at the enterprise level where they have so many of these. Well, I think as far as these strategies, I would rather talk about it in terms of randomness. Um, because essentially, like if you, you know, like if you take a strategy like CVSS, I don't know, eight or nine and above or something like that, essentially what you're seeing is that the efficiency is on par with a random selection. So like if you just randomly pick out vulnerabilities and say, we're going to fix that one, and then you roll the dice and how oh, we're going to fix this one, and you keep rolling dice, um, then the coverage is just a factor of how many times you roll that dice. 
You know, so you can, if you're going to fix 10, your efficiency is going to be constant, right? Because you're rolling a random dice and you're getting a uniform distribution. So it's going to be constant. So if you wanted more coverage, you just keep rolling the dice and keep on fixing more. So then the, the point is going to move towards higher coverage, but the efficiency is going to stay right at the the random level, right? And I think that's what we're seeing for a lot of these strategies, that they they might go above a little bit or below a little bit, but largely what what everyone gets coverage by essentially brute force. Yeah, no, and I believe, um, what was it? CVSS 7 Plus was one that was right around random chance, right? That was one of the better strategies. It's slightly better than random chance. And then when we looked at actually all the enterprises here, um, if they were to take a pick a vuln to handle at random or roll the dice, they'd be correct 15.6% of the time. So. Yes, but – and I think we look at this a little bit later in the report and it's really important to, to call this out is, is coverage and efficiency when you're looking at it at an individual vulnerability level, which people don't do in the real world versus at the patch level, right? So I go out and I deploy a patch. Oftentimes I'm fixing more than one vulnerability and it might be that I'm fixing something that's a CVSS 10, but I'm also fixing three of them that are CVSS 6, right? Or right. something yeah. like that. So, yeah. um, and, and, and we did look at this, I think it was figure 16 where we kind of sample set it out uh, a number of different orgs uh, that participated and said, all right, so here's what they looked like in terms of coverage and efficiency during remediation. But then we looked at it, Jay, I believe you looked at it, you were the one that actually by pulled patch, this yeah. by patch, uh, which was uh, a significant improvement, right? Because then you're looking and saying, ah, so really the, why they deployed this patch, or at least the, the theory is they deployed this patch because there was uh, a risky vuln in that patch along with a bunch of non-risky vulns. Yeah, and the thinking is that organizations apply a patch, they don't fix a vulnerability, right? And so the decision then is at a patch layer, do I apply this one or not? Uh, and so what we didn't want to do is penalize them for deciding to apply a patch that fixed a whole bunch of things. If anything in there is something that they should prioritize, then the patch got a yes flag, you know, a label on there. And so if they applied that, that was a good thing. And if they didn't, that was a bad thing. And so that's that's how the efficiency improved greatly because we weren't penalizing for these extra vulnerabilities being fixed in a in one specific patch. Yeah, and that's, it's important because also it represented no additional work for them, right? So why not fix right. those other five that exactly came along with the patch? Yeah. yeah, and what and what we're kind of grounding out is Microsoft Patch Tuesday, right? You typically get a patch and it's going to fix a whole gamut of things. One may be critical. Um, it's very rare for there to be actually nothing to really worry about in a Patch Tuesday list, but um, you're going to be handling a whole lot of other things with that one patch. So that's by nature going to bring your uh, efficiency down, even though artificially basically. Right. Yeah. So getting into this as well. So we use what you call a confusion matrix and a little piece of fun report trivia here. I think this is the first and only time we use a confusion matrix chart in any of the report series. Jay, what's a confusion matrix? Well, I want to <laughs> clarify. It's the only time we've published it. These occur quite a bit behind the scenes. So a confusion matrix is essentially if you build a decision machine, if you will, um, you want to know how confused does it get, right? Uh, and <laughs> nice. that's what a confusion matrix is. And so um, if you think about, uh, you know, so like think of flipping a coin heads or tails, right? And so uh, I'm going to flip it and I say, all right, heads or tails. And you say heads and I flip a heads, then, hey, 
they agreed, right? That is a true positive. Uh, you said heads and it turned out to be heads. And so you get these four quadrants, if you will, basically like when you say heads and it is heads, it's true positive. When you say tails and it's a heads, uh, assuming that you always want to go after head, you know, there, you have a positive class and a negative class. So you get false positives, false negatives, and then true negatives when both agree on the negative class. Um, so you have these four quadrants and then basically you, you can put in a model that makes a decision like this. And then you can say, all right, how, what proportion were true positives? What proportion were true negatives that you can safely delay? Uh, and the real problem I think is in the, the false positives. Uh, and that's what we see in a lot of the models that we created that a lot of the approaches, like I said, sort of this brute force approach. So you get a lot of false positives. Hey, we want to fix these things but they aren't really being exploited. There's no exploits out there. There's, you know, so you're, you're sort of saying, I want to prioritize this, but you don't need to. So that's the false positive aspect. Good description. I'll try to, let me see if I can read over the actual results of this confusion matrix as well here. So um, this is figure 14 for anyone following along at home, but basically the top left quadrant falls into the you remediated something and you should have, right? It has an exploit for it. And out of the entire list, that was 300 and what, 81 million actions, essentially. Is yep. that how that breaks down? Yep. Cool. And then the top right quadrant was you remediated it, but you probably should have delayed, right? This was not an action that needed to be taken necessarily. So it was wasted effort, I guess you could say. And so that was 1.7 billion. So in total, people took 2 billion or enterprises, organizations, a little over 2 billion actions essentially out of this chart, mm -hmm. correct? Yep. Cool. And then when you break down, bottom left is you delayed and you probably should have taken care of this. So that was a miss, right? That was 163 million actions. And then bottom right was you delayed, you should have delayed, good call, and that was 1.2 billion. So people are taking a ton of actions. Yeah. And the false positives are a debatable topic because, I mean, you know, like we talked about, if you have a patch that fixes 20 things, but you think you only need one out of the 20, mm -hmm. just fix the whole thing, you know. And so, but the yeah. other 19 might be called a false positive then because you didn't really need to. They're not exploited. They're not exposing you or whatever. Um, and so... There's a little bit of debate on whether we want to focus on the false positives, but I think when you're talking about resources of a team, if you have high false positives and you still have false negatives, you're still missing them, then obviously the prioritization effort is not aligned here. Well, and one of the takeaways for me with this is people are, if we're looking at amount of work being done, right, there's enough work being done to actually cover all the stuff that should be taken care of if you know what to do. Right, and more. Right. Right. And a lot and more. more. Yeah, a lot more. So you can actually start to balance the whole efficient. You can hit efficiency and then start to go to town on coverage. Right. Right. And the what the data suggests is that these companies actually have the resources to do exactly that if they know how to do it. That's that's the positive. But again, I'll, I'll throw out the big caveat, as I always do, which is it's not every volunt is the same amount of work and effort to, to fix either. Like we, we talked about Java earlier versus pat deploying a Microsoft patch, right? Sometimes you just do it because it's simple and it's easy, right? This represents 15 minutes of my time. This represents a month and a half of my time. Yeah. The theory versus the reality. And to add to that caveat, I think it's super easy for us to look uh, 
going back and say, of course, this is what people should do, you know, <laughs> uh, but that's obviously not reality. I mean, everyone gets that output from the vulnerability scanner and, you know, they lay it on the desk with a thump because it's a huge stack. And um, and then they run away and, and, and that's the IT tricky to part. With it. But I mean, like the reason that we're doing this is not to say, look how bad people are, is to say, look how hard this is, right? This is a very complex environment. And any there's no strategy, no easy strategy that we found that would work well. You know, so there's no easy answer. There's no silver bullet. It's, it is a very complex thing. And so we just wanted to throw that out there as another caveat. It's super easy to look back and be like, look how wrong everybody is when in reality, <laughs> it's just super hard. We can all just be prima donnas like Ed, right? We can't all be prima donnas like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it. I think you use this to calculate the overall coverage and efficiency across this entire data set, right? So all the enterprises. So the coverage was 70% and efficiency is 18.5%. Right. Roughly. So, I mean, it does, it does give the impression that, um, you know, that the strategy of throwing a dart at a wall uh, seems to be what we're seeing. Um, but I mean, obviously there's, there's companies doing better and companies doing a little bit worse. And so it, it is a complex problem. So we got to be careful about making uh, judgment calls on anything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it also shows that a lot of companies seem biased towards coverage versus efficiency, which is not a wrong approach to no, take. That's right? actually a good approach. And yeah. I think in, in later work, we actually ourselves started to de-emphasize the efficiency thing, uh, saying, Hey, I mean, if, you know, if an attacker is coming at you and you talk about the weakest link approach, you know, you want to make sure that the whole chain is strong along the way. And that's coverage, you know. Yep. Agreed. I, I would say some of the things that we actually see typically in these customers is they they kind of grow and mature over time. Right. And they when they're early on and they're a little bit more immature in this state, uh, oftentimes you see companies that will start emphasizing uh, efficiency, right? Because when they start to put the effort into remediation, they want to make sure that they're they're making as much of it count as possible, and they're really driving down their risk as quickly as possible. And then over time, they start to mature and they build in more processes and they get better at it. And then they start to shift more towards coverage, so that they can get you know to what we've been talking about, which is to say, you know, I, I want to really broadly reduce my risk and make sure that I'm I'm covering myself off. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So just for people listening, you know, kind of security, our platform, it, we have a thing called top fixes. And Ed, I think you're referring to a lot of companies when they first start up, they go after these kind of top fixes, the biggest bane for the buck, which would be in theory, the most efficient use of your time and really drive down um, the risk score within the platform. But then at some point, you get to a place where you're, you're operationalized, right? You're, you're just you're handling things as they're coming in more or less and you have kind of a steady state where there's always going to be some inherent risk and now you're trying to you know tackle the the broader landscape i guess yep cool yep. yeah well so we go from one published chart first and only in the confusion matrix to something that i think is in every single report since then maybe maybe so. not but it's, it's almost all of them for sure um but Survival analysis. So, Jay, could you give us a give us a breakdown? What is that? Yeah, it's uh, it. I, I've really grown to appreciate survival analysis, and so survival analysis is a collection of techniques. It's not just one technique, but it's a collection of techniques that's focused on essentially time to an event. So, starting at some period of time, 
time passes and then an event occurs and you want to understand what that is. And so simple way to think about it is like, imagine, you know, a row of light bulbs and you want to know how long light bulbs last. You could, you know, plug a whole bunch in and watch them in time to an event and then use survival analysis and figure out, you know, the expected life of your light bulb or whatever. Um, and so it's the same concept and survival analysis obviously comes from uh, healthcare type things when you're looking at disease and rate of survival for people or subjects. Um, but this applies in so many other things. And actually it has, I don't know, at least a dozen different names depending on the field that you're dealing with. Um, so you could think of it here as the survival rate of vulnerabilities in an environment, which is how we're using it. Uh, and so the thing that it measures, there's two things that measure. So when people think, you know, what is the average time to patch something or remediate something? Uh, if, if, people aren't familiar with the survival analysis, they're going to take a look at their data and see that they've got a bunch of open vulnerabilities still, and they've got a bunch in closed. So the average time to close, let's take a look at those closed and look at the dates. But if you have 100 vulnerabilities and you close two, and they were closed in two days, and you say the average rate of closure is two days when you've got 98 still open after three months, that's not a very accurate picture, right? And so survival analysis accounts for everything that's open and so the open uh, puts is put into the models like it's been open at least this long, as long as we've observed it. Uh, and so what the survival curve represents is at the time of discovery of a vulnerability, what is the probability it is going to still be open after some time? And that time is the uh, horizontal axis in the charts. So after three months, for example, there's about... Uh, what about 50% chance that it will still be open or 50% chance it'll be closed if you want, you know, your glass to be half full. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, after 30 days, we still see roughly about a two thirds still open. Um, as you get to one year, we still have roughly, what, 18% um, yep. still open. And so, I mean, it's pretty amazing, actually. I mean, so what, what we see in a lot of these curves and, and efforts like this is that you have a really steep incline uh, of, you know, people seeing these and like, all right, we got to go after these and they fix a whole bunch. They have a steep decrease in the line and then it starts to smooth out and flatten a little bit. Um, but the other thing I really like about the data here is that if you look closely, you see sort of a wiggle in the line and that wiggle is every seven days because companies tend to scan weekly. And so what you see is like it's discovered uh, whatever day of the week they scan and then they scan seven days later and all companies generally scan seven days later. So you see a decrease at seven days. So it's kind of cool to see that scanning rate. So even, even if they closed it in day two, they don't scan till day seven. And that's when it's recorded as closed because that's the interval of time that we get recorded. So you sort of see the line go and then it drops at day seven and it goes and it drops at 14. It's really subtle because uh, not everybody's doing that. But it's sort of cool to see that scanning rate in there. And this is figure 17 in the report just for people following along. And I don't think I ever noticed that little wiggle, actually. It looks like a nice curve to me. My brain just rounds it, it a lot out. of Look across all of the curves. It shows up. It's pretty cool. It's, it's interesting, too, too. And we do this, I think, in some later volumes, looking at comparing different, whether it's tech stacks or vulnerabilities or specific things. It's interesting to just look at the steepness or lack thereof of the curve. It's a, it's a really easy visual to go, oh man, it take, it's hard or people are really slow about remediating this vulnerability or it's easy or super fast. Just looking at the, the, the how quickly that, that curve drops off is a great visual. 
Yeah, and I did want to note as well. So for calculating this, and I believe what the the patch efficiency, right, where we're talking about um, basically compensating for uh, patches that are remediating multiple vulnerabilities, we actually looked at a sample of 12 firms. So it wasn't the entire gamut for those, um, nor the survival curves, because I think we were talking about number crunching and time when we're talking well, about that, that comes of later. data points. Yeah. <laughs> and so I remember actually in volume two here, um, we did a sample of 12 firms because of the, the large data problem. Uh, and I think we were under a time crunch and decided to go with 12 firms to first make it a little bit lighter. And it was, you know, a little bit lighter at 190 million vulnerabilities. So, um, but yeah. And so I think later these curves, uh, you know, the, the curves actually drop and look a little bit better uh, from remediation times now. Yeah, we've we've continued to kind of refine and dig into it, but I, I like this first one. So, uh, you know, you guys were referring to Figure Seventeen, which has just the overall sample of these twelve, right? But then you go and look at the survival analysis by each individual firm, and one of the fun things when we're reviewing these reports is typically we're looking at the all these lines showing the um, timelines for remediation ultimately and we'll see one company or one vendor one data point where it just drops like really fast and that always starts a conversation for every single report that we've done um, and so that's figure 18 here you can see kind of dotted lines different colors and it shows that there's a lot of variation between these kind of remediation programs yeah. Yeah. And this actually is subtle uh, compared to what we actually see. So, I mean, if we look at the hundreds of companies that we're dealing with now, uh, essentially you look at a, the, the box that, you know, you've got the, the full plot area, it essentially fills up with lines when we do it by organization. So you've got organizations that are stay at the top that roughly keep a lot of things open for some reason. And then some orgs that drop almost straight down right away, uh, fixing a whole lot of stuff. And so, and everything in between and every different direction in between. And so you just get this sort of spaghetti looking plot of lines going every which direction. So it's really hard to talk about the average company because there's so much variety. There's so much variance across the companies. Um, it's it's a really interesting space. Hey, hey Jay, um, maybe now would be a good time to tell us what area under the curve means and how that might apply. Sure. Yeah. Do we talk about it in here? Not in know. this one, but okay. it'll sure. show up in the next report. <laughs> Essentially, so like if you look at the figure 17 and survival curve, and for those who aren't looking at it, it starts in the upper left and it drops quick. And it's just this gentle curve that slopes to starting to flatten out to the left. Um, and at the area under the curve, you know, if you think of like calculus and you're doing a, uh, what is it, the integral, and you're looking at the space under a function, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about. How much space is under that line? So if you have a company that is slow to fix and doesn't fix a lot, their line is going to stay relatively high. And if you think of, you fill up, if you just had a line that went straight across the top, the area under the curve would be one. It'd be 100% of the plot areas under the curve. If you had something that went straight as diagonal to the lower right corner, it would be 50% because 50% of the plot area would be under the curve. Um, and so it's a really easy way because it's really hard to take a line, like maybe some company will go attack it quick, attack vulnerabilities quick, but then flatten out and maybe come down again. So you have these wavy lines that are going up, you know, going down at different rates. And so it's hard to say which one's faster. 
So one way to do that is to say, what is the area under the curve, which will obviously uh, reward companies that go faster, quicker, because if they go fast, they're going to bring that line down right away and reduce a lot of the area under the curve. And so it's one way to compare survival curves uh, and, and the rate of remediation across companies. And we do that later across industries and a whole bunch of different ways. And so it's one way to sort of compare these survival curves and say, which one's actually faster. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense to compare something like this where in theory, no one – actually in reality, no one's ever going to get to 100%, right? For the most right. part, all intents yeah. and purposes unless it's you know Dan LLC and I patched my only laptop that exists in my right. company, which is mine, right? Um, yeah. And so it's a good way to compare these data sets that have large numbers and very long tails, especially when you probably shouldn't be tackling a lot of this stuff in general as well, right? And talking about like a average time to close or something is really difficult with this before that problem where you can't say, well, you don't, you never get a hundred percent closure. So what is the average when you don't have a hundred percent closure? You know, it's, and so the, the talking about survival analysis, there's probably at least three major different ways to talk about a typical time for closure here. Um, and I think we talked about a lot of them throughout the reports, actually, we work them into the conversation anyway, we may not have explicitly called out the details behind it, but we brought them into the conversation. One of them is actually area under the curve. Yeah, I think area under the curve, we start really looking into that in the next um, report series. In this one, we kind of broke down these kind of intervals, right? So like it took uh, 30 days um, on average, almost 69% of vulnerabilities were open, right? And so we can compare that against some of the exploitation timelines from the first report and be like, yeah, not ideal. Right. Realistic, not right. ideal. Um, for 50 percent of vulns uh, were closed after 90 days and then 32 and a half after 180. And then, like you said, 18 percent were open after a year. So very long tail on All that right. front one. And I think that's, you know, that's where we start to, um, you know, lead into our next uh research report. So we'll have to get you guys on the line. But um, for that one again, but Jay, you know, what are some of your takeaways from this report? I want to go back to the complexity because I mean, anybody who has not worked directly in vulnerability management will think, well, I just go patch everything. Like it's, you know, I get a notice on my PC that says patch stuff and I patch stuff and it's patched, you know, why don't, why don't companies just do that across the enterprise? The fact is it's, you can't, right? It just doesn't happen. And so you have to talk about prioritization and even that gets tricky because, you know, there's so many factors, there's technical aspects of the vulnerability, the asset it's on, how important is the asset? How much effort is it going to take to actually apply that patch? Is that patch going to break anything? You know, you've got all these things to consider and you might have downtime and all this stuff like that, you know, trying to pick a window. There's so much stuff going on that the complexity here is uh, amazing. And I would say uh, interesting from maybe a sadistic point of view. But um, I think that there's so much going on here. And I think volume two uh, is like the our, our second step, obviously, and digging into that complexity. And as we'll see in some of the future volumes that will be discussed, there's, there's so much going on. Uh, and I don't think there's, I don't see a bottom to this research. Like there is so much going on. There's so many different areas to look at. It's a really fascinating area to study. Awesome. Ed, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Jay on, on the, the bottom or lack thereof. Um, but uh, it, it's funny because we go out and we'll finish one of these research reports and 
we've set out to answer a particular question and then we come away with five new questions with with every question that we answer right so uh, and this there's certainly no exception here in volume two volume two is great because we we said hey all right we've we've looked at everything in nvd but how real is that let's let's actually start applying some of these real world found in the wild vulnerabilities uh within these environments and see what we get and and you know we came up with some interesting result sets there are certainly some some things that were like as jay talked about oh yeah of course that's 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 exactly what yeah. we were expecting right um yeah. and including you know there's a, a subset of vulnerabilities that actually companies have to deal with. Um, but this was interesting. I, I, actually, one of the things that I really walked away with, because uh, we started talking about coverage and efficiency in volume one, was looking deeper at efficiency as a, as a patch efficiency versus a vulnerability efficiency. So when we started to pluck out these sample set of companies and say, how are they doing? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't measure them on the individual vulnerability level because they're actually going out and fixing 10 vulnerabilities with this patch, right? And that was, that was a big, uh, that, that was an eye-opening graph, I think. And I, I forget exactly which, uh, uh, which figure that was within the report, but where we actually show the lift that you're actually getting from, from the patch was, was one of the cool takeaways. Uh, and of course, we ended up with, oh, God, now there's like 15 other questions that we have to go out and answer. <laughs> Hence, we created volume three and so forth. Uh, it's figure 16, by the way, for people following at home, uh, the, the patch non-inefficiency. <laughs> Double negative. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting. And, you know, as we dig into these, I think the the coolest thing for me is I got to see us um, – you know, when we're working through these reports in real time, it's easy to get lost in the the data sets and yeah. anal analyzing these really deep, you know, very long Google Docs, right? right. And looking through the numbers and validating its accuracy. But um, it's kind of cool because we're figuring out, especially looking back on these, how to measure some of this stuff, how to define this stuff, what yeah. the challenges are, um, and trying to figure our ways around those or how to explain them, um, which I just found interesting. That's why I brought up the whole um, confusion matrix, you know, use for this one time and then survival curves. I'm like, oh, this was the start of that. I've spent so much time looking at these. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, we will continue to dig through this series. And for everyone listening at home, again, I will link uh, Science Institute. I will link, Jay, your book. And I will also do a plug for CIRA because I think it's a really, really cool organization. And they actually have CIRACon going on right now. So a lot of cool information um, popping out there. Um, and then, of course, we'll have the reports and all that good stuff. And for anyone else listening, you know, check out Scientia Institute's research library. They have a ton of industry research there. I think it's probably the largest collection of security industry documents on the planet, <laughs> if I had to guess. So anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll see you later.